Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. Blade Runner came out in 1982, a year that Phil calls, quoting the film scholar Scott Buchatman, an anus mirabilis of speculative cinema. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, and Rutger Hauer, the film is arguably the most successful attempt to translate Philip K. Dick's metaphysical vision into cinematic language, although I'd submit Denis Villeneuve's magnificent sequel, Blade Runner 2049 as a close second. At the center of the story is the idea of replication, the possibility of things passing themselves off as other than they are, of things masquerading as beings. The theme is central to another movie that came out in 82, John Carpenter's The Thing, whose titular monster we described back in episode 100 as a hexaity without quiddity which is medieval philosophical lingo for a thisness without a whatness. This episode picks up on that theme, as well as a number of other ones from previous episodes, notably the syzygy of the serpent and the dove discussed in episode 114. While Phil and I may disagree about the significance of the famous unicorn that appeared in the definitive 1992 version of Blade Runner, we do agree on one key thing— the preeminence of the human being in the film, that is, of the question of what a human being is. True to Philip K. Dick's vision, Scott's film asks us to think about humanity, to define it in an age that challenges the very notion that any object might be construed as a being, let alone one for whom personhood, or God forbid, the soul, might constitute an irreducible substance or quality. Blade Runner is cinema as prophecy. And the 40 years that have gone by since that magic year when it came out have only confirmed its prophetic power. If you enjoy what follows and would like us to keep recording discussions on works of art like Blade Runner and The Thing, you might want to consider supporting Weird Studies on Patreon. Top-tier patrons, and by top-tier I mean six bucks a month, get to enjoy an extra episode on every off week. And patrons in the middle tier, three bucks a month, get to read exclusive essays that Phil and I publish regularly on the site. This bonus material is our way of thanking those listeners without whom Weird Studies would have been retired long ago. I also invite you to write us at admin at weirdstudies.com to share your questions, ideas, and suggestions. We can't answer all the mail we get, but we do read it all, and it means the world to us. If you dig the musical interludes we use in each episode, You might be interested to know that Pierre-Yves Martel, our resident composer, has released an album of expanded tracks written for the show. It's called Weird Studies Music from the Podcast Volume 1, and you can purchase it in CD, vinyl, or MP3 format on Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. Finally, Weird Studies has a brand new t-shirt available at the Cotton Bureau. The t-shirt was designed by listener and friend of the podcast, Karina Ulrich. The link is in the show notes. 
All right, on with the show. This is exciting. Talk about low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the lowest of low-hanging fruit. Yeah. It's... To the extent I was almost surprised when you suggested this. I'm like, wait, I guess we didn't already do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Blade Runner. 1982. So 40th anniversary this year, mm -hmm. which ages me because I remember seeing the 1992 cut, the 10th anniversary in the movie theater. So 30 years ago, I first saw this movie. And I think this is a particularly important film. And we've brought it up before. I mean, I think you've quoted Roy Body's closing words, you know, his final... Multiple occasions. Yeah, a couple of times. So it just feels necessary that we do this. Yep. And as, as you'd expect, I have reams of notes. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know how, how we're going to do this, but... Uh, well, I had a cold this weekend. And I was feeling shitty all weekend. And so I didn't have the energy to take notes or really do much except, you know, like... Watch it. Watch it. Although, actually, I did read, finally got around to reading Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the novel that it's based on. Although I, I read it quickly, and I have to say, it's not my favorite of his novels. It's a hot mess. There are times where I feel that Philip K. Dick's novels, all but the best of them, feel a little bit like he has an erector set of just ideas, plot points, things that he likes to do. Because although he's wildly inventive, his inventions often do kind of have a family resemblance to them. He felt a lot of pressure to keep cranking these things out. You know, the per, right. per word uh, pay that he was getting was pretty low. So he had to. And keep there are moments where you're up. like, well, that doesn't really make sense, but I guess that's the amphetamines talking. Sometimes there's some of that too, or the dog food, because he was eating dog food. Uh, I don't know if it was when he was writing this yeah. book, but there were periods in his life where he was so poor he was eating dog food. So it's true. It's true. I remember reading about that. Philip K. Dick lived a hard life, but goddamn, the man's brilliant. And even as riddled with incoherencies or things that don't quite work or things that don't quite go together, it's still just a incandescently brilliant yeah. piece of uh, imagination. Really funny compared to the movie version. Not a lot of chuckles in the movie. In the movie, no. Although I picked up on more this time around. It's Honestly, Blade Runner is one of those films that I can watch like I'd listen to music. I can just watch it on repeat. Yeah. And every time I watch it, I get more. It's a, an inexhaustible well uh, for me. And so I'm super excited to be talking about it. The novel, I didn't have time to reread. I have read it a couple of times. But I did read a couple of essays by Philip K. Dick on the idea of the android. So some of that might come into play. An essay called Man, Android, and Human, he wrote in 1976, and in an earlier essay called The Android and the Human. Mm -hmm. the, the first essay I mentioned, Man, Android, and Human, he talks about androids for about two pages and goes off about like zebra and <laughs> God and all the <laughs> other stuff. But uh, the earlier essay is filled with relevant material that we could bring up. Um, we decided that we'd do this show on the original film. So we're really talking about Blade Runner 1982. Starring Harrison Ford, directed by Ridley Scott. That's the film we're discussing. The, I think, magnificent sequel by um, Denis Villeneuve, 
might come into play, but it's not our focus. We're not talking about the Blade Runner franchise or the Blade Runner universe. We're talking about a particular film. Is, am I, is that how you understood it too, Phil? Yeah. So I didn't rewatch Blade Runner 2049, although I did see that in the theater and, and loved it. I also want to bring in the, uh, from the Wheel of Fortune show, I want to bring in the idea of the serpent and the dove, which I think is particularly strangely, oddly, unexpectedly re- relevant as I well, was watching the Well, there's a serpent. Film. And, and there's, there's a, a dove. dove. Yeah. So yeah. where I want to start is by saying one thing that I don't want to talk about very much, which is the fucking unicorn. Fuck that fucking unicorn. Really? That's the rift. Nah. <laughs> That's the rift in the film. That's not the rift. It's a rift. It's, well, it's, yeah. It's, kind of it's a, a pretty intense rift. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you what my beef is with the unicorn. Is it's not so much the unicorn, which is a lovely image, mm-hmm. and when it emerges in the versions of Blade Runner that have it, which is not the theatrical release, I don't think. But let's remind re- uh, listeners of what what happens, if you don't mind, just so they okay. know. Yeah. All right. So all I want to say is I don't want to talk about is Deckard a replicant because I think that's such a boring, boring interpretation. And that's all anybody wants to fucking talk about with this movie. Is Deckard a replicant or not? Well, I I agree that it's a boring question, but it leads to a more interesting question. I think. Okay. So So, I guess. So I might bring it up on, uh, by way of getting somewhere else. There's no escaping it. Got to talk about the fucking unicorn. Okay. So (laughs) to explain the unicorn, this is, this is as good a place as any to begin. And needless to say, everything in this episode is spoilers. So if you haven't seen this film and you want to stop right this instant. So the story is about replicants, androids that are so perfect in their imitation of human beings. There is only really one highly technical and specific way to tell them apart, which is something called the Voigt-Kampmann test. And androids have been developed in this futuristic society, Earth, in 2019, where these Androids have been built largely to assist in off-world colonization. In the novel, it's a bit more explicit that there's been like a nuclear war that's rendered Earth not uninhabitable, but increasingly devoid of life. There's almost no animals left, and human beings have been escaping and colonizing other planets in the solar system. But uh, this takes place on Earth, and so one of the cool things you get from reading the novel that is also kind of implicit in the film, but not really explicitly ever brought up. Something I like about the film is that you glimpse things. There's a whole lot of showing and not telling in this film, which I really like. Yeah. But uh, the book makes it more explicit that this is actually a very depopulated world. Mm -hmm. And in any event, um, I'm getting down. Fuck. I hate this when there's like, I'm creating nested parentheses and I lose (laughs) track of what the first parenthesis was. It's about replicants. And the yeah. Repub- replicants so a, are used oh, to yeah, slave yeah, labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And so replicants are used to slave slave uh, slave labor. Fuck. I'm getting annoyed. I'm getting irritated by my own all too human limitations. You know, if only there were an android that could do my job. If like Roy Batty would probably deliver lines with more verve. Yeah. And you would be on your game because you would be worried the whole time that he would gouge your eyes out in a fit of pique. Exactly. Just come through the screen and be like Videodrome meets Blade Runner. Videodrome, by the way, another great science fiction film that came out in the same year, 1982. Mm -hmm. So did John Carpenter's The Thing, 
Yeah, that was quite a year. As Scott Buchatman puts it, an annus mirabilis of horror. Right. Uh, should mention Scott Buchatman's marvelous BFI film guide to Blade Runner. I'll probably bring that up during our conversation because I did read that. Anyway, God, world's worst plot synopsis. This is fucking god. I don't awful. think we really there's need androids. A plot they're slaves. That's th there. <laughs> I could have just said that. And a Blade Runner is a bounty hunter of sorts. In the movie, it seems that they work with the police and they hunt down renegade replicants who end up coming back to Earth because the, the, the replicants are banned. They can't be on Earth. They're illegal on Earth. And so they're hunted down and, and killed. Or retired. Retired, as they say. And uh, Harrison Ford plays one of these Blade Runners. Interesting about right. the title, just in parentheses, um, the term Blade Runner doesn't appear in the novel. So what happened there was that in 1974, a uh, science fiction novel came out by Alan Norse called The Blade Runner. It was about underground surgeons in the in a dark uh. future when uh, basically the medical establishment had gotten tied up with, with eugenics. So you could only receive, this is, I read about the novel. You could only receive uh, medical treatment if you accepted to be sterilized first, unless you were, you passed this test to be one of the, the elect who get to reproduce. So people would resort to underground, underworld kind of um, medical practitioners to get the care they need. And a Blade Runner is basically an underground surgeon. And uh, William S. Burroughs wrote a treatment for the film adaptation of this novel in 79 called Blade Runner, a movie. And that treatment ended up in the hands of one of the producers of Blade Runner, who then just decided not to make that film, but just take the title and slap it on to do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. And that's how the bounty hunters in Philip K. Dick's universe came to be called Blade Runners. Otherwise, the term is kind of nonsensical in the film. Why would they call him that? Oh, but it's actually kind of genius and kind of rifty all in its own. Yeah, because it's like there's, there's nothing about blades anywhere in this movie. No. And Blade Runner doesn't even plausibly connect anything that you see in the film, but it sounds cool. Rather than just sounding like some random bit of gibberish. And then you get a lot of this in science fiction, like where people are inventing bits of gibberish for technological things that don't exist. This actually sounds so cool. It sounds like something that must exist. Yeah, right. You figure there's some connection you're not getting. And yeah, there's some obscure etymology that explains why bounty yeah. hunters get called Blade Runners. You just never know. And this is one of the things that's so genius about this film. It's something that I heard somebody saying about the same guy who did Blade Runner 2049, Villeneuve, yeah. also did Dune, and... A guy named Chad Dundas, who's a MMA reporter I like, was saying something about that film that you feel like you're watching a drama that's taking place in a world that has a history mm -hmm. and a culture and a whole kind of realm of complexities that extend into the vanishing distance. Exactly. And yeah. off screen. And you're only catching little glimpses of this self-existing world. A little bit like what we were saying about the impression that you get in a Byzantine service, right? like an Eastern Orthodox service, or that Eno talks about as the aesthetic he's after in his music, where you feel like you're stepping into a larger continuum. Exactly. You know, yeah. this was Dundas's point about Dune, that you feel like you're stepping into a larger continuum. And this is very true of Blade Runner. Even the name Blade Runner seems to point to a whole story, a whole history that we're not going to learn about because this film isn't about that. 
And the film is full of stuff like that. The way the buildings look, the stuff that people are eating or reading on the streets. It's such a realized world. Yeah. It's funny, Delphine and I were watching it together last night, and Leslie was watching it as well. Anyway, so it starts off, and we're getting all these wonderful, long, establishing shots of the cityscape and the streets, and, and Delphine's like, I want to live there. <laughs> and I'm like, I know exactly what you mean. This hellish realm is a place I, I want to live there, too. It's just there's something about it that's so rich, so textured, so real. Uh, when Philip K. Dick first, he didn't see the final completed film, but he did see an early version of it in the production offices. And uh, he watched it twice through. And afterwards, he was deeply impressed with the film. He's like, this is not science fiction. This is realism, is what he thought. Mm. And uh, in the letter he wrote to the producers, which I read just before we recorded, so I don't have it on hand right now. But he basically was saying that this was kind of a, a futuristic work that really gave us a full-fledged world. Like it showed how science fiction was about world building, about creating, weaving together a world that exceeds the page or the screen, that feels in somehow like some kind of imaginal realm that was always there and they just happened to somehow put a camera in it, you know? Um, yes. He doesn't use those words, but that's the impression I got. Um, you're right. And, and it's through all these little riffs, including the rift of the title. Now, one of the affordances of riffs is that they allow you to get all meta and philosophical. So when I think of Blade Runner, for me, that just those two words slapped together make me think of uh, like uh, walking the blade's edge or running on the blade's edge. One, one available interpretation is that it's making a reference to Deckard's, Harrison Ford's character, not knowing where he falls on the replicant human divide. So as bored as I am, and I agree with you, whether Deckard's and a replicant is a boring question, I think it's only boring because it's a means to an end. I think that Ridley Scott goes to great lengths to make you ask yourself that question watching the film. There's no doubt about that. Right. It was unresolved even on set. Harrison Ford to this day argues Deckard was human. And as, as the, the latest film showed, Deckard was human after all. Yeah. But Ridley Scott always maintained that Deckard was a replicant. But the real question is not whether Deckard is a replicant or not, but whether you, the viewer, are a replicant. That's one of the philosophical questions that this film is asking, is that what is a human being? In this world that has been completely stripped of animal life, that there's nothing left in this world that humans didn't make. In the novel, and by implication, also you hear about this in the film, real animals are pretty much extinct. These people live in a world that's been entirely, completely humanized. So then the question of what is human kind of becomes important. I love that in the film, they chose to call the androids replicants, whereas in the novel, they're just called androids. Because replicants puts me in the mind of one of my favorite pieces of weird fiction, Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene. Mm -hmm. And the first chapter of The Selfish Gene is called The Replicators. But uh, a replicator is a, a molecule that can create a copy of itself. And that, for Dawkins, is the motor of evolution. And um, as Dawkins makes clear, by evolution, he doesn't mean a specifically biological process that only applies to life forms, but rather a kind of universal law. Instead of survival of the fittest, he says we should talk about survival of the stable. The physical laws of the universe favor stability. They find stable arrangements that can last because they're stable. It's kind of a tautological concept on his part, but he's never been much of a philosopher. So things in nature seek stability, and that 
automatically just created the first molecules, which then formed living things and all that. So the replicators are the key to understanding how the universe functions and how certainly how life formed. And at the end of this opening chapter, he writes this here. Replicators began not merely to exist, but to construct for themselves containers, vehicles for their continued existence. The replicators which survived were the ones which built survival machines for themselves to live in. The first survival machines probably consisted of nothing more than a protective coat. But making a living got steadily harder as new rivals arose with better and more effective survival machines. Survival machines got bigger and more elaborate, and the process was cumulative and progressive. Was there to be any end to the gradual improvement in the techniques and artifices used by the replicators to ensure their own continuance in the world? There would be plenty of time for improvement. What weird engines of self-preservation would the millennia bring forth? Four thousand million years on, what was to be the fate of the ancient replicators? They did not die out, for they are past masters of the survival arts. But do not look for them floating loose in the sea. They gave up that cavalier freedom long ago. Now they swarm in huge colonies, safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by torturous, indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you and me. They created us, body and mind. And their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. They have come a long way, those replicators. Now they go by the name of genes, and we are their survival machines. What a wonderful passage. What he's trying to say, basically, is that humans are replicators. All we exist, and we all know this, that's what Dawkins believes, that's what kind of textbook biology says. Humans exist in order to, and that's just a metaphor, because in order to-ness is just a kind of epiphenomenon of human brains, which exists purely to replicate our genes. We simply exist for this purpose. We are replicants. To me, the conundrum that the emergence of the android puts to us is the question of our own humanity. And Philip K. Dick, in his own writings on the android, constantly comes back to this question. It's not so much that the things we'll create in the future, these androids, are not human. It's that in order to create them, we must make ourselves inhuman. That we have to become machines before we can create these beings. Mm. And then it'll be a toss-up as to who the human is. Because, of course, the whole film, Blade Runner, it's all about how, if you look at it kind of objectively, I, I kind of saw it last night. I mean, Deckard is absolutely the villain in this film. He kills two women, unarmed women, shoots them down. Shoots one of them in the back. Yeah, shoots one of them in the back. And at the end, Roy Batty, the leader of the replicants, nevertheless saves Deckard's life. Yeah. And so the question of the human is very much at the center of this film. And I think that Absolutely. the question of whether Deckard's a replicant is only secondary to that primal question. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So the business with the unicorn, there's a woman named Rachel who is uh, a very high-end replicant, one of this new breed, the Nexus Sixes. And the man who has invented these machines and is the head of a vast, gigantic corporation, the Tyrell Corporation. He wants Deckert to test this machine, and he tries to trick him by saying, this isn't a replicant, it's actually a person, but I want you to get a reading off of a person before you try to read a replicant. And it turns out she is, in fact, a replicant. And she and Deckert end up kind of falling in love, but part of the pathos of Rachel's character is that she doesn't know that she's a replicant. She has memories that tell her 
that she had a girlhood, you know, she has parents, she had a whole life before she came to work at the Tyrell Corporation. But as Tyrell explains to Deckert when Rachel's out of the room, well, she doesn't know that she's a replicant. It's a basically, the replicants only live for four years. Yeah. Uh, you're told at one point by Bryant, the hard-nosed noir police detective who's delivering the orders to Deckert, that they're kept to a four-year lifespan because they can't control how the replicants develop emotions. They will develop emotional responses as they go along, and you don't want them to develop such a complex inner life that they become ungovernable. So yeah. you shorten their lifespan so that they don't have enough time to really develop as autonomous personalities. And you give them memories because when you build an existence for them, a context for them, a psychic context for them, they're easier to control. And I found that very interesting. And as we find out in the later film, in the Vinev's film, this bestowing of memory to replicants effectively turns them into humans. Uh, yeah. It gives them a soul in a sense. And so Rachel becomes this kind of liminal figure, this in-between right. figure. I love the associations with Rachel. Did you make your point? Am I interrupting you? No. But okay. Uh, I, you remember we were in the Wheel of Fortune episode, we were talking about salmon and their blind yeah. instinct to make it to the headwaters of a river and they will dash their body against the stones again and again until either they're destroyed or they finally make it to their destination. Mm -hmm. That's how I am with unfinished bits of conversational business. Okay. <laughs> I will keep swimming my way towards the unicorn and it doesn't matter how many times <laughs> you stop me, I will get there. So please. Yes. Okay. What were you going to say? I was going to say that the, uh, there's a lot of animals in this film, and I really paid attention to those last night for the first time since I, I first saw this film. I really paid attention, tracked the animals. And there's an animal associated with Rachel. It's the owl, the artificial synthetic owl in Tyrell's uh, boardroom. The way that the film's cut, you really get the sense that the owl turns into Rachel. Because you see the owl swoop across the room, land on its perch, and all of a sudden it cuts to Rachel emerging into the shot in a way that continues the owl's movement. So you really get the mm -hmm. sense. Watch it. You'll see it. It looks like the owl turns into to Rachel, which is a wonderful touch because the owl of Minerva is the animal of Athena, right? The goddess uh, of Athens, the virginal goddess of truth and justice and all the Athenians' favored ideals. But she's also Athena because Athena was the goddess who came out of Zeus's head. She was uh, Zeus's intellectual creation, which is exactly what Rachel is to Tyrell. I thought that was a wonderful little, mm, you know, mythic, mythic reference there. But anyway, so Rachel is somehow connected to the unicorn. I'll let you get to the unicorn now. <laughs> well, as you say, Deckard is sort of a villain. He's not a sympathetic character. No. And... He tells Rachel, like, she runs away. Yeah. She is passing for human, and that's against the law, and the Tyrell Corporation can get away with that so long as they keep her kind of on site. But she runs away, and she shows up as she finds Deckert. And so now she is marked for death. I mean, like, she's a runaway replicant. She's exactly the kind of being that Deckert is supposed to hunt down and destroy, but he harbors her. He gives her sanctuary. And as I say, they fall in love and 
that's actually not the most believable part of the story because there's zero chemistry between Harrison Ford and and the woman who plays Rachel. I can't remember. Sean Young. Sean Young. And says, I don't buy it. But it doesn't matter. Apparently, they hated each other when they were shooting the film. So. Oh, OK. <laughs> no, yeah. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. When she shows up at Deckard's apartment, he's a real asshole. He just starts telling her her memories. Yeah. Like memories that are embarrassing and that you're pretty sure she's never told a soul about. And he just rattles off these memories. And he's like, they're not your memories. They're Tyrell's niece's memories. Yeah. And she is, of course, hurt, deeply, deeply wounded by this. And later it shows him at the piano. He has a piano and he's like picking out notes. He's drunk. And not in the original, right? In the original theatrical release from 1982 which is disfigured by a studio-mandated happy ending and a voiceover narration that they added to try to make the plot more understandable, like to explain the plot, mumbled by a, a comatose Harrison Ford who apparently hated the voiceovers and deliberately fucked it up so that they wouldn't use it. At yeah. least that's the story. Well, that's what he said. <laughs> that's what he says, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, does he? I don't know if he well, said he that. says that he tells the story of how he was called over to record these voiceovers and like why really Scott didn't want them. And anyways, he shows up at this place and there's this dude in a room alone in this hotel writing out the voiceovers and just like handing them over to him. He's like, what the fuck is this? So maybe he didn't sabotage it on purpose, but there was no context. There was no yeah. It's not like there was a lot of motivation for him to find the the, right. the part you exactly. Know? Okay, so anyway, he suddenly has a vision of a unicorn, and that didn't appear in that original 1982 release that, as I say, was disfigured by studio interference. It appeared, I believe, first in the 1992 director's cut. He inserted this clip of a unicorn, and that's clearly like an inner vision that Deckard is having. It's like maybe a memory of a dream or some inner event. And then in the last scene, where Deckert has retired the replicants and he decides that he and Rachel are now going to flee and they're going to be on the wrong side of the law. And the film ends on an unresolved note as he and Rachel get in an elevator off to whatever the future holds for them. But before they do, he sees this little origami unicorn that's been left at his doorstep. And there's this guy, this sinister, almost entirely silent cop played by Edward James Olmos, who shadows him throughout this film, who is constantly making these little bits of origami. He leaves these little origami animals everywhere in the film. And by leaving Deckert, an origami unicorn seems to be doing the same thing to Deckert that Deckert did to Rachel, which is to say, here is a token of how your inner life is not inner. I know about the unicorn. Therefore, I know what your memories are. Therefore, you are a replicant. And apparently, Scott just wanted that there because he decided enough of this ambiguity bullshit. Time for everybody to know that Deckert is actually a robot. The end. And apparently everybody else hated it. But Ridley Scott's just like, nope, we're doing it. Yeah, well, I think. Uh, which to me is a terrific example of how sometimes the worst custodian of a work of art is its creator. And sometimes a creator of a work of art is criminally incompetent in their handling of it. Uh, I, I, Especially I, motherfuckers that want to go and retouch their work. Oh, I'm going to make it better. Like fucking George know. Lucas. Shoehorning fucking Jabba the Hutt into everything. Maybe they should have put Jabba the Hutt 
in Blade Runner. I sorry, I'm getting really weird and and aggressive about this, but I just it might be that it might be that the cut in unicorn, which I I thought was part of the one of the first releases, but I guess you're right. I thought it was actually kind of brilliant for all kinds of reasons. I don't think it wrecks the film. I don't think that I think Ridley Scott is perfectly in his rights to keep working on a work of art. He certainly wouldn't be the first great artist to do that. But uh, I agree with you that it's a little bit, it's heavy handed. But the way I read it, if you assume Deckard's a human being, you don't read it as a clue, like confirming that Deckard's a replicant. That's one possible reading. But the reason why I think that the presence of that unicorn shot actually increases the ambiguity of the film is that it has really different resonances, whether you decide that um, Deckard is a replicant or not. If you decide that Deckard is a human being and he finds the unicorn and he just so happened to have a dream of a unicorn just the day before or a couple of days before, then his finding the unicorn, the reason why he nods to himself, because you see him in the original cut, he picks up the unicorn, looks at it, and then nods in recognition, like he suddenly understands something and then leaves. That's how the film ends. He has a reaction to the unicorn. I think is actually quite important because what, and this is, I agree, a very idiosyncratic, very me kind of interpretation, but Jung often made the link between the unicorn and the dove, the white animal, the kind of virginal white animal that comes in from the outside of the order of nature. And so for me, Deckard finding the unicorn is the equivalent, symbolically, of Roy Body finding the dove. And the, mm, oh, what I makes, like that. What makes the unicorn the dove in the sense that we were discussing in the Wheel of Fortune show, the dove is the acausal magical element in reality that comes from the outside and that turns every closed circle into a spiral. Uh, the element that does that is the fact that he had a dream of a unicorn and then sees one. It's the synchronicity of him finding the unicorn on the floor. Oh, I like that. That resonates with his dream. And all of a sudden he's like, uh, he finds his purpose, his sense of the telos that he saw in Roy Batty when Roy Batty saved his life. I mean, in that scene, we really see Deckard realizing how inhuman he has been, right, to these replicants. And so for me, that little moment where he finds Gaff's piece of origami in the shape of a unicorn is his moment where the synchronistic, i.e. the the a-causal connecting principle of reality mm. dawns on Deckard. And that leads straight into the next film where Rachel miraculously gives birth to a child, even though she's a replicant. So it actually leads to uh, a miraculous event, which becomes the crux of the next film. So to me, it all kind of works. Now, did I just ah. cobble all that shit together for myself? Maybe, but you know. I, yeah, that's, but I like it. You know, it's possible that Ridley Scott feels that the film is improved by that move, not in the sense that it's, he's finally forcing everyone to think of Deckard as a replicant, but in the sense that it opens up a symbolic space, which he may or may not have thought through, but for me actually is quite pregnant with meaning, literally pregnant. Um, and, and this, is, this opens yeah, up a, nice. another- Yeah, I like that. So, you know, there's no right answer with this stuff. It's just, I love bold moves like that to a fault sometimes but I've always enjoyed that little moment. Well, the reason that it bothers me, the flat assertion that this means that Deckard is a replicant is, first of all, that kind of conversation to me is a very boring sort of sci-fi conversation. Yeah, kind we're of not going to have that. you have all the yeah. time. And boring because 
if true, then it loads the dice so heavily in favor of like all of the different plot elements then fall into place like iron filings obeying the magnet. Right. Then all of that wonderful kind of suspended knowing that the film is so good at giving you this feeling of like you're just sort of thrust into this extraordinary world and you're figuring it out. You know what I was saying before that it's slipping you into a fragment of a longer continuum. And so in that situation, you are in a world, you just have to start exploring it and finding things out. And I dislike anything that's going to foreclose that exploratory activity, right? Right. You don't want this to be an allegory, right? You want it to remain open. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to reopen it despite that move. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I love your interpretation of it. The other side of it is also that it's a little bit like when I went off on unreliable narrator ploys, like when they're done cheaply and badly, obviously they can be done in all kinds of amazing ways and have been done, but it can also be a way of um, taking everything back, like the ending of The Wizard Wizard of of Oz. Oz where Dorothy wakes up and it's all a dream, right? That's not exactly unreliable narrator, but the narrator turns out to have been unreliable that the whole time this was a dream, we just didn't know it. Yeah. And I hate that kind of thing because it takes away the story. As do I. Absolutely. Then why, then why did we even sit through this story just to be told that none of this shit even matters? Right. It's sort of analogous with that, but I guess I've said enough about it. Um, you didn't want to talk about the unicorn. <laughs> I know. And I, this is a funny thing. I started saying, we're not talking about the unicorn and now it's become the centerpiece of the show. We're not going to talk about Judy. Um, no, it's exactly like that. Yeah. All we ever ended up doing for Twin Peaks, the return was to talk about Judy. Yeah. But what I loved about your interpretation of it, maybe it's providential. We ended up talking about the unicorn because for you, the unicorn becomes a figure of greater potency for the opening up of a world, Mm -hmm. establishing that larger continuum in which we might find ourselves as overwhelmed and mystified participants in this world. But that's, you know, what I'm always after. Right. And the creation of a good world and feeling overwhelmed by it and saturated in it and not understanding it, but catching glimpses of a totality that I may never entirely grasp. That to me is the sweet spot. That's the pleasure of this kind of fiction. And what you did with the figure of the unicorn is to take that and to turn it into a figure of that opening rather than the closing. What I don't like about it is the way it feels like a ham-handed authorial imposition trying to close down what this film can mean. Mm-hmm. And You know, actually, the way I set it up, saying that Deckard's realization when he sees the origami unicorn is that something that he thought was on the inside, i.e. private, an element of his internal mental functioning, is now on the outside, like somehow Gaff knows about it, right? But that's actually the nature of the weird world, where... You know, a kind of bourgeois (laughs) understanding or assumption, a complacent understanding of what's on the inside and what's on the outside, what belongs to me, what is my private property, psychologically speaking, versus what I'm taking from the outside world, realizing that that is actually always already hopelessly confused. Yeah. That's actually Jung's definition of synchronicity. It's the coincidence of an external material event and an interior subjective state. That's what a synchronicity is, right? So it's the Mm. blurring of the line between the inside and the outside. That's the essence of the weird for Jung. Absolutely. 
And yeah. this film gives us that in spades. Okay, so what else are we going to talk about? Well, while we're at it, can I just throw in my thing about the serpent and the dove? Absolutely. This is this struck me yesterday because I've had the serpent and the dove on the mind now for a couple of weeks and really thinking about Tomberg or, you know, our known friend's um, take on those biblical symbols. The serpent being that force in nature that coils in on itself, that basically that seeks stability in Dawkins' sense, that seeks, you know, enclosed being. It seeks to protect itself in a survival machine and make more of itself, right? Mm-hmm. That's the serpent. And then, of course, Tomberg brings in this other force, which is the dove, the way that all these closed circles of nature are constantly spiraling in this strangely meaningful direction, that there's a kind of cosmic evolution of meaning correlated with the blind mutations of matter, you know, like somehow these things work together in a kind of Théâtre de Chardin kind of way. So there are two worlds I find in Blade Runner, two levels to the world. There's the I've been calling it the undercity, the street level world, where people are all crowded together and it's kind of, it has this kind of almost orientalist feel to it. It's on this yeah. networks of roads and back alleys and stuff, and people are just brawling down there like rats or something. And an upper world, you know, like uh, the world of the flying squad cars soaring above the city where Tyrell, a kind of quasi god figure, lives, for instance. So these two worlds have each their symbol, I found. Uh, So after the prologue, the film begins with a kind of prologue where a former Blade Runner who looks strangely like Harrison Ford, I find, gets killed by one of the replicants. Then we start the story proper. And there's a crane shot of the camera descending to the street level because we've been in the sky or up there. And now we descend into the street level. The first thing we see in the foreground on the right side of the screen is a neon dragon with a forked tongue. And then we enter the world of Deckard, the hellish infernal realm in which he exists, the street level world. And the film ends on a rooftop where Roy Batty dies and releases the dove in an almost kind of embarrassingly biblical image of a dove flying off into the first rays of sunlight we've seen in the whole film. So strangely enough, you've got these two worlds, that hellish infernal cosmic hell world of the street, which is ruled by the serpent. And in fact, there is a serpent in there. One of the main plot points is that Deckard finds a synthetic snake scale in a bathtub and tracks it to one of the replicants who's working as as an exotic dancer who uses a snake in her act. And so the world of the serpent and then the world of the dove. Just thought that was an interesting resonance that I hadn't foreseen until I watched it last night. And I'm like, wow, we just talked about this. So that's good. You could go places with that.
there's a few different conversational paths that I wanted to take. And one of them is to think about how this film, Blade Runner 1982, might tell us something about the world of 1982. Mm. This is a kind of classic academic historicizing move, right? But, you know, it could be an interesting thing to want to do. Yeah. I was reflecting on this in terms of my own biography. So like, you know, I was born in 1969. This film came out when I was 13. And this is a film that it flopped in its theatrical release, but it's one of the first films to enjoy a serious second life in video rental. And also they showed it at least on Canadian TV a number of times. And I remember... It was a movie that my friends talked about, and it was always sort of like talking about the gross bits. And a typical way that teenage boys talk about movies is the gross bits, like the bit where Roy Batty gouges out Tyrell's eyes. Did you watch yeah. that? Oh, I'm so gross. Yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking about this, that, okay, this film is being given the 40th anniversary treatment. I mean, we're talking about it now because it's the 40th anniversary. If I think back to where I was in graduate school in the mid-1990s, where I started becoming fascinated with the world that Philip K. Dick inhabited, the Cold War American world. I became fascinated with the American 1950s, and that was a source of a lot of my doctoral research, this fascination with this time, which for my position in the 1990s when I was a graduate student, this was a period of time distant enough that... There's a little sort of haze of history around it where we're starting to have historical narratives about the 50s that are telling us a story of the time the way we want to tell the story, but not necessarily how things actually shook out in that time. Right, right. right. Typical thing, like when you become awakened to the fascinations of historical research is when you realize that the common understanding of a given period of time is really the way we want to tell the story. It's right. self-serving in that way, right? That there's a whole other history to seemingly banal and obvious time. Like, we all know about the 50s. Leave it to Beaver and all that shit, right? Yeah. yeah. We have this way of imagining the time that is heavily filtered by boomer memory, by people who grew up in that time who have a story to tell about their own youth in the 50s, like Fonzie an, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah well, in the, so often in academia, it's to define the 50s as this repressive, culturally dead period where nothing happened in order to set up a heroic narrative of the 60s as a period of cultural breakthrough, of a cultural awakening. It's as if, you know, everything was in black and white and somebody suddenly turned on the color knob in the 60s, right? And I became fascinated with the historiography, the history writing. How do you write history of the 50s and 60s in a way that is not just captive to a very boomer-centric narrative, a self-serving narrative where you were rebelling against the Cold War technocracy? Right. Todd Gitlin, who died, I believe, this weekend, former president of the Students for Democratic Society, wrote a marvelous memoir called Years of Hope, Days of Rage. You know, that book I've read a bunch of times, and I love it. But at the same time, he is doing a kind of narration of 50s culture in order to set up his own necessary rebellion and the re necessary rebellion of his cohort. But back then in the 90s, 
you know, as part of a, a generation of Gen X scholars coming up and no longer interested in the received wisdom of my boomer elders, I was very interested in understanding the 50s in a more kind of complicated way. Well, I was realizing that when I start forming that as an intellectual project for myself, the events of the 50s were about 40 years earlier than where I was writing my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So my point is that now a young scholar, a millennial, even a Zoomer coming up now and tired of hearing the self-serving narratives of Gen Xers like ourselves might very well be thinking the same thing about the 80s because the 80s is now 40 years earlier than our present time. Yeah. And so there is a whole ream of Gen X scholarship about what Blade Runner is about and what it means, placing Blade Runner very firmly within the categories of postmodernism. You know, certain works of culture like Talking Heads, Remain in Light, that was a big one. Anything by Laurie Anderson, mm -hmm. Blade Runner. Post-punk kind of. Post-punk post yeah. stuff, cyberpunk, like yeah. Neuromancer by William Gibson is a big one. Mm -hmm. There are a number of 80s cultural objects that have become sort of exhibits A, B, C, and D in the case that you make of the cultural logic of late capitalism. There's this really famous book by Frederick Jameson called Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. That book, which heavily influenced me when I was coming up in graduate school and influenced fucking everybody. It's one of the most influential works of humanity scholarship of the last half century. That book set in place an idea of what these objects mean. The idea of postmodernism, for example, as a denial of a centered human agency. Right. Blade Runner is fucking tailor-made to serve as exhibit A in that particular branch of postmodern aesthetics. The idea that there's no me behind this face, behind the appearance of a centered subjectivity, a bourgeois subjectivity, the sense that I'm the captain of this ship, me, Phil Ford, I'm a ship that my ego, my conscious, rational, deciding, wanting things kind of ego is in charge of. And that idea of subjectivity, of course, has been under assault for more than a century by Paul Brucker's Masters of Suspicion, Freud, especially really assaulting the idea that we have this rational, conscious ego that's calling all the shots, the existence of unconscious drives or the, you know, the realization of how powerful they are and how many of our self-destructive decisions in life are made by unconscious parts of our psychic functioning that obviously puts a big dent in the idea that we have some kind of centered psychic unity. But the postmoderns radicalized these ideas and saying that there is no there there, that the centered psyche isn't just like a part of the psyche, like the ego. It's a fiction all the way down. In many ways, and we said this early in our, I think maybe the episode we did on Lisa Ruddick's essay, When Nothing is Cool. That's like right. a really early episode. Yeah. Um, talked a little bit about how this postmodern idea of decensored subjectivity 
could be compared to Buddhist notions of the same thing, except as a kind of a, a false friend. It's sort of a lookalike. It looks like the same thing, but it's not really. It's kind of a replicant, you know? Right. So if I were looking at Blade Runner now in 2022, one thing I would want to do would be to start questioning some of those assumptions that this is a film about the flattening of affect, mm -hmm. the flattening of the human to just basically becoming what we very often assume the human to be in this day and age, a bundle of stimulus responses, something like... A survival machine. <laughs> yes, yeah, something like Dawkins' survival machine. Right. A replicant, in other words. I mean, yeah. this is the thing that people have been saying from the beginning. Oh, what Blade Runner tells us is that we're all replicants. Right. And this is one reason, perhaps, why I really wanted to push back on this idea of, like, A, that the question of whether Deckard is a replicant is like the most important question. And, you know, it's the question that everybody needs to ask. I don't think it is. And B, the assumption that, yes, we've solved that question and Deckard is definitely a replicant. Why that bothers me is because it just feels so much of a piece with a kind of reception that's kind of cliche by now. We've been making this scene now for 40 years. And I want to go back and look at this maybe ask like some questions about not just what does it mean in itself, but could it tell us something about the period, about the 1980s? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I can speak to what it can tell us about the 1980s. Actually, now that you say this, I am connecting it to the essay I wrote about Stranger Things, which admittedly was not made in the 1980s, but is about the 1980s. And what I chose to do in that essay, which was to argue that the series Stranger Things is set in 1983 precisely because this was the very eve, the last year before the release of the Apple computer, which was advertised as our liberation from this Orwellian totalitarian society that was being erected around us. So I tend to, I don't have a historicist bone in my body. <laughs> when I read Philip K. Dick's ideas about the human and the android, and I look at how those ideas are explored and extrapolated and developed in the film, I see Dick and Scott as almost as Dick's instrument, because I think uh, Scott was very faithful to Dick's philosophical vision. I see this as the mythopoic expression of a truth that we ignore at our peril. So I really read this film mythologically the way I'd read the Odyssey or something like that. Fair enough. So I, I don't know if I can, that's the way I'm trying now to kind of put it well, in its place. Well, that frame breaks the facile right. argument from postmodernism. Exactly. Yeah. Because that facile argument would then interpret the climax. You know, when Roy Batty makes that climactic speech, the tears and rain speech, which yeah. is for me, one of the most beautiful and moving moments in all of film. You could say, well, that is the articulation of this idea. Like, there's no me here. I'm just a bundle of bits and pieces, odds and ends, bits of memories that might not even be my memory. I could easily, for example, in the, the media landscape that started opening up in the 60s, I could easily watch stuff on TV and imagine that that happened to me, right? Right. And so here we have this machine, basically like a talking toaster telling us of all these things it's experienced and whether those memories were implanted or not, 
you know, from a certain point of view, we could say it doesn't really matter. They're just a bundle of things that made this machine that has aspirations to be something more than the collection of its several pieces. A real boy. Yeah. Yeah. But then the acknowledgement that all of those bits and pieces amount to nothing and are just washed away like tears and rain seems to be the ultimate affirmation that uh, none of this shit matters. It surfaces all the way down. It's all appearances. It's all just manner mm -hmm. rather than any actual substance, right? Right, right, right. Except I, in fact, would argue that there's a profound humanism in this. And I'm not the only one, too. It's not just you and me. Scott Buchatman argues this, I think, gently, but nevertheless, firmly in his BFI guide, that this is an affirmation of the human. Yeah. It's just like Roy Batty is more human than Rick Deckard. But he bestows humanity upon Rick Deckard through this act of forgiveness, which is to grab his hand and lift him yeah. up off the roof and yeah. then deliver this little poem it's and release the dove. Redemption is what it is. Yeah. It is redemption in a world without redemption, in a fallen world, in the world of the flat circle, the closed loop. Yeah. As you say, the dove is perhaps clumsy, but a symbol of the opening of the loop. This is all yeah. getting back to our conversation in the Wheel of Fortune card. In a world where you're like, where's the redemption? Is there anything, any principle of like kindness or love or decency or something that would redeem both the hellishness of the setting and the hellishness of the lives contained within that setting, but just sort of to redeem the world? Or are we really just condemned to the flat circle of the endless reshuffling of known entities, endless futile power struggles, pointless cruelties enacted by all against all? Or is there something that breaks the system, that transcends the system, something that allows us the hope of a way out? Right. That's right. some corny shit. And let me tell you, fucking Zizek and them are not necessarily going to be wanting to lean on this idea of no. an authentic redemption that becomes possible in this space. But the film is, to me, meaningless and pointless without it. Now, from a certain point of view, there's a, this postmodern argument that like, ah, the meaninglessness is the point. But that, to me, is a failure of imagination, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. I think it's a misreading of the film, personally. I agree with you, especially if we take Dick's own thoughts seriously. You know, it's funny because Philip K. Dick has gone through a similar treatment. The scholarship has tended to see the religiosity of his vision as it's, I, I think the scholarship has tended to pathologize that part of him. We're not going to take his religious claims seriously. What we love about Dick is his play the way he plays with the semiotic system and our epistemological systems, the way that he blurs lines or talks about nonlinear time or, you know, like the whole kind of slipstream aspect of Dick. And that's the sure. emphasis. And then the religious moral aspect of his work tends to be seen as a kind of escape hatch that he kept for himself so that he wouldn't go mad or kind of tends to be seen itself as part of a pathological element in his character, which yeah. enabled all this amazing work, but also, you know, let's put things in context. The guy wasn't quite right. Uh, whereas I want to read Dick as a religious thinker, yeah. as a kind of modern Gnostic thinker and a mystic, really, almost like 
canonizable material in some ways. Yeah. Uh, when he gets sentimental, I find him incredibly, incredibly powerful as a writer. Uh, there's a moment in one of the essays I read where he talks about this girl he knew who got an abortion and was kind of destroyed by specifically by the abortion, but by the way she was abandoned by her boyfriend whom she was getting the abortion for and by her family. I was crying reading the essay last night. An essay, you know, it's not every day that you you get... I find that side of him, the moral, religious, human side of him, and also his constant struggle to remind us of humanity and of the, the place of the human in the world and how we, lo- we, we ignore that or we sacrifice it at our peril to be the most important part of Dick's work. And this reflects my own sensibilities, I admit, and all that, and that's fine. But I was reading these essays. And so one of the things that he argues is that we are living in an increasingly totalitarian paranoid system, right? He makes a reference to a Ray Bradbury story. He writes, as in Ray Bradbury's superb story in which a fear-haunted citizen of Los Angeles discovers that the police car tailing him has no driver, that it is tailing him on its own, we should be sure that one of us sits in the driver's seat. In Mr. Bradbury's story, the real horror, at least to me, is not that the police car has its own tropism as it hounds the protagonist, but that within the car there is a vacuum, a place unfilled, the absence of something vital. That is the horrific part, the apocalyptic vision of a nightmare future. So what scared Dick was the constant innovation and creation in modernity of systems that legislate values. That basically, like, instead of having a cop sitting in a cop car, you'll just have the cop car doing the cop's job. But the, the difference between a robot cop, a robocop, and a real cop is that the real cop, the human cop, can make exceptions. He keeps coming back to this, the ability to make an exception, the ability as a human being out of your own free will to break the rules, to cheat, to steal, to ignore, to just wander off aimlessly, to be wayward, to sin, essentially, in the, in the etymological sense of hamartia, which means to miss the mark. But by the same token, to perform an act of kindness, to choose the good, to behave in such a way as to elicit gratitude. Mm-hmm. This is what we stand to lose in a society that's overly systemized, that's completely governed by systems of control. And he's saying, it, once we've done that, the android it just becomes a figure at this point. We don't need to create androids. We're making ourselves into androids. Mm. We're creating this, these paranoid systems of control all around us. So for Dick, the whole point of Blade Runner or of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is that in some way we must continue to assert and affirm our humanity in the face of all the forces that would deny it, negate it, nullify it. And Blade Runner for me is, it's a, it's a film about how we need to do exactly the opposite of what Zizek thinks we need to do. And it's to maintain or retrieve a sense of the human that we've lost. Dick kind of outlines two elements that make something human. At one point in the other essay, he says that when we use the word a human being, we shouldn't be so caught up in the idea of like a biological entity. Humanity is a way of existing in the world. And it's a way of existing that is qualified by a kind of freedom to choose the good. So if a robot can start doing that, then the robot becomes human. And he had no problem with that in principle, in theory. The problem is when there's no more choice, when everything is determined by algorithms, or as he calls them, tropisms. So 
The first element is this radical freedom, which we've in our talks represented with the figure of the dove. That's the first element that makes something human. Our ability to escape any control system that we happen to be ensconced in, to always find a route of escape, go somewhere else. And uh, the other element is suffering, existential suffering, which he thought can turn an object into a human. If a robot can come to see and experience its own suffering, it will immediately be turned, he says, from clay into a human. And then he has this weird moment where he connects that idea, that existential suffering, which defines the human, with the idea of motherhood. So as I was watching the film, I was picking up on all the mentions of motherhood. And it's really interesting the way the mother comes up on a few occasions in the film. The first time the mother comes up is when the first Blade Runner is questioning Leon, the replicant. And he says, tell me the first word that comes to your mind about your mother. And then, of course, Leon gets up and says, I'll tell you about my mother, which is a kind of glib reference to Freud, and then shoots the guy, kills him. Later on, when Rachel wants to show Deckard that she's human, she brings a photo of herself with her mother. She says, see, this is me with my mother. And then in the sequel, in 2049, the whole plot revolves around a replicant who becomes a mother. So there's a moment in one of his essays where Dick talks about the Pietas, you know, these famous medieval Renaissance sculptures of Mary holding the dead Christ. Yeah. So there's a very famous one by Michelangelo. And what's striking about that particular sculpture and others of its kind is that Mary looks about 10 years younger than her son. She looks very young and the man in her arms looks like he's, you know, lived a full human life and is now dead. So what Dick senses in that is a kind of, well, I'll just put it plainly. He says, Christ can die on the cross and the world will go on. But if we lose Mary, then we're fucked. That's what he writes. I can't remember mm. the exact, that's not what he says exactly, but it says, if we lose Mary, then we're done for, something like that. So the point is, if we lose the feminine, we're done for. Because the mm -hmm. feminine for Dick, I guess, I'm trying to interpret it in his writing, becomes the irreducibly human part of us. The woman is the part of us that cannot be mechanized, the part that's a threat to the control freaks who would like to, you know, mass produce humans in factories. Immediately after showing Deckard the picture of herself with her mother, Rachel listens as Deckard describes her private memories to her. One of the memories is of she and her brother playing doctor and all that. And the other memory is of a spider, a mother spider she saw kind of like watching over her egg for many weeks. And then finally the eggs hatched, a hundred spiders came out and ate the mother, which I find to be a very interesting little parable of a totalitarian society that, that destroys its own kind of grounding in and by, or by mother here, I mean, ultimately Gaia, the earth, it's grounding in the earth, in the motherhood of the earth, in our thirst for control and power to basically devour our own mother. So the dreams has this kind of weird symbolic resonance, especially if you read Dick's writings on this topic.
a while ago, I threw open the challenge. How could we use this text to think historically about the period of time in which it appeared? And you deftly sidestepped that question. Yeah. But I've got a couple of things I might throw out there. I'm just curious to see what you make of this. So Blade Runner came out around the same time as a number of other seminal films that are in that kind of fantasy, horror, sci-fi zone. So Videodrome by David Cronenberg, The Thing by John Carpenter, and probably some other ones that I could think of if I taxed my brain. But there's a sort of a continuity here, and it's the idea of the replicant. And so Mm. I love that you brought in that quote from The Selfish Gene. And while you were reading it, I was thinking about kinds of monsters. And I've said on this show before that I feel like we need new kinds of monsters, that vampires and zombies have had a lot of play, and everyone's sick of zombies now. And so what are some good monster types? Maybe demons, maybe ghosts or or do a renaissance, right? Right. And then I was thinking, there's this particular niche of horror films or films that have horrific elements to them where the monster is a replicant of some sort. Right. That's its thing. Something that imitates the human in an insidious way. And so the obvious example is the replicants from Blade Runner. Yeah. Which lack empathy. Yeah. That's something we haven't talked about. The Voigt-Campman test that Deckert administers to replicants to make sure that the replicants... It's not so clear from the film, but in the book, it's obvious that it's a series of scenarios that the subject is asked to imagine, and they will have a completely automatic response, like a blush response or an eye dilation response that they can't cheat their way out of. You can't outsmart this way of registering very tiny changes in your physical response of empathy or disgust. So like you would talk about like somebody wearing a coat made out of the skins of babies or something like that. And then a human being with a normal degree of human empathy would respond with a little bit of disgust to that, whereas an android wouldn't register it as anything, right? Right. So the idea is that androids are almost like human beings. The one thing that they're lacking is empathy. However, they're stronger than human beings. They might be smarter than human beings and they don't have any kind of conscience or empathy holding them back from doing terrible things. And so this is why androids have to be hunted down. This is why they can't live on planet Earth. They're like us, almost. But that little degree to which they're not is sinister. Think of the replicant in The Thing, which I recently watched for the first time, and it blew my fucking mind. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. After years of people telling me, you really should see The Thing. You like John Carpenter, you'll love it. Yeah, that's that's an understatement. It's an absolute stone masterpiece, but such a great concept for a monster because the monster doesn't actually even have a form of its own. No. The monster is just a kind of patterning, a way of patterning, of taking different physical features from human beings and other creatures that we imagine it is assimilated in the past, 
And you see every time the thing emerges, it's this kind of like weird storm of flesh constantly knitting itself into new configurations. Now it looks like a spider. Now it looks like a wolf. Now it looks like something else. A pure hexady without quiddity, as we said, I think. in our, Yes, uh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. But the thing about it is that it too is capable of replicating the human almost perfectly but the almost defines a kind of uncanny valley the right. point at which it's not quite a hundred percent there and there's something deeply sinister about the idea of something that is almost us and videodrome also i haven't watched videodrome i've watched bits of videodrome but it also has something to do i think with like the electronic replication of human consciousness Right. Right. I saw it once a long time ago and I can't, I just remember, um, I can't remember the actor's name pulling a gun out of his own, out of a vagina in his stomach. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, it has that kind of body horror thing going. Yeah. It's a little bit, actually, there's a podcast, like a music podcast called Beyond Yacht Rock, where it's a bunch of music nerds who like to make up genres that don't really exist. And one of their genres was George Orwave. <laughs> which is it's like this kind of new wave stuff or like from the early 80s that was suddenly all about surveillance and control sort of like private eyes by uh hall and oates for example right And it's true. There's a ton of songs from that time that are all about like, I am the eye in the sky. You know, what's that one? I, the eye in the sky. I am the eye in the sky. Looking at you. I can read your mind. I am the maker of rules. Dealing with fools. I can cheat you blind. And I don't need to see anymore to Yeah, being surveilled, right? Right. Uh, this creepy feeling that when you think you're alone, maybe you're not. Right. No, that was big in the early 80s. I'm that thinking, was big. And that's one of those things. watching me. I don't remember that song. Remember that? all these tunes are coming to me now that's yeah, crazy and yeah it's george Orwave. that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the that's, genre that oh, they represent right fantastic and it's really cool to find those connections this is what historical thinking can do for you is that you can start finding these points and you start connecting them and suddenly you have like a historical object a thing that you can talk about and you can mm. say like why those songs on that theme betraying that particular anxiety we could come up with like, oh, it's the Reagan years, it's Cold War, whatever. Like, there are a number of kind of cliched interpretations that might come readily to our minds. But the point is, regardless of what we make of it, it's a thing. And I'm thinking a vogue for monsters of replication. Right. Is also a thing from around the same time. And we could think of those two things together, or we could think of them as unrelated. But in some way, I can't quite verbalize mm. it seems to tell us something about certain structures of feeling and thought that i kind of remember from the time like when when i was young mm -hmm. like a spirit that was abroad in the land and i'm wondering if maybe we could try and perform a ritual to invoke that spirit in a triangle of art 
and get it to speak to us and tell us what was the spirit of the age. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I kept thinking of Freud's The Uncanny as you were talking, because that he really goes deep into that particular brand of monstrosity there, the the uncanny, the Heimlich, yes. Heimlich unheimlich, right? The how the right. home what is familiar becomes unfamiliar. All that stuff we talked about in our Sandman episode. Right, right. I think you're onto something there. I, I certainly love you bringing up The Thing, because you watch The Thing alongside Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene, and what you have is basically the perfect Darwinian construct. It points to the absolute emptiness of our own being. Yeah. The word monster comes from monstrum, to show, to appear, right? Mm. And uh, montrer in French, demonstrate. Um, so the monster shows us something about ourselves. Right. And I think that this brings me back to what you were saying, like kind of like the Gen X reading of Blade Runner, which is that there is no interiority. I mean, one of the key images in Blade Runner, one of the rifts in the film is the recurring shot of the eye. Yeah. Reflecting the cityscape, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. the outer world appears on the eye. There's no interiority. There's just, the eye is just the mirror yes. of the outside. And this fear that, that there is this gutting of the interior, which I think characterizes the epistem that follows the Second World War since Hiroshima. I think maybe this is what these films are picking up on. Now, why the early 80s? I don't know. I don't know. I think well, you're, let's, hey, let, yeah. let, let, let's pick up on the clue of the eye because I think that's really important. Right. So, you know, Scott Buchatman in his marvelous BFI film guide to Blade Runner points this out right from the beginning that the eye is the figure. Buchatman says early on seeing is everything in Blade Runner, but it guarantees absolutely nothing, which I like. Right. We see things and we see things seeing things it's a very ocular film and yet there's a sense in which things remain at the level of surfaces opaque now yeah. this yeah. is this is the idea that i'm trying to grope for here in this historicizing tendency that i'm outlining this film is partly about anxieties of vision that's like what you see is not what you get these right. monsters of replication as you say, it shows us something. It's, it's right there in the word monster. Yeah. And what we're seeing is ourselves, but not quite. No, exactly. There's something a little, yeah, uh, and, and the anxiety around that. But there's also in a situation like a horror film where it's dark and you just see a glimmer of something, of course, what you want is you want to look into the darkness. You want to take what is implicit and to make it explicit. You want to unfold things from the darkness into the light of day. But one of the ways that we can historicize this film is part of a neo-noir tendency that you see mm. in the 1980s. Blue Velvet from 1986, so right. only a few years later, is another manifestation of that. There were a lot of films that were inhabiting this kind of weird temporal zone of like flashing back to the 40s and 50s. Blade yeah. Runner does that very obviously. Another one is Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's a wonderful film. Yeah. Yeah. There is a kind of a vogue for neo-noir. And one of the fundamental tropes of noir is of the private eye. Oh. the A private eye 
that is, in a sense, an embodied eye, like a great big sort of proxy for the consciousness of the viewer whose whole job is to move through labyrinthian city space. Like film noir, among other things, is a way of picturing spaces and yeah. picturing the space of the city as a kind of sublime profusion, too much, you know, like the voiceover to the beginning of a, an old TV show, The Naked City. There's eight million stories in The Naked City. You know, and noir is always telling us about all of the millions of stories out there. And it gives us a feeling of like, okay, we're looking at this story right here, this particular investigation, but it's really just a thread we're pulling out of this vast fabric. And the stories themselves emerge from the crossing of boundaries between the sunlit above world, like the official part of society, the picket fence, suburban lawn Mm -hmm. part of society. And then the other side of town, right? The wrong side of the tracks, the- The undercity. The the demi-monde, the underside of society. And the thing is that in noir fictions, there are characters that can cross those boundaries. Yes. Criminals and cops and private detectives are like their job ultimately is to be able to go places that you, the viewer, can't go. Right. You, the viewer, are in whatever specific designate context society has given you. So you know your little world. But the private detective, the private eye, is the one who can move. He doesn't actually belong to any settled order of society. His being is mobile. His being is becoming like he is always moving from one state of society and one place in the city to another. And so noir fictions are always showing us this. And the great example I always give is the opening of Touch of Evil, which is a famous crane shot. It's an Orson Welles noir film from 1958, I think, which starts with a bomb being left in the trunk of someone's car. And then in an uninterrupted, I think almost four minute long crane shot, the camera follows the car as it winds its way through the labyrinthian city streets of a border city, like on the border of the US and Mexico. A single unbroken shot, it's a famous coup de maître, you know, a virtuoso stunt. And the shot ends with the car exploding on the American side. And that's what kicks off the story. But I'm I'm fascinated with how the camera, the eye of the camera, is so directly doing the thing that film noir always does. It becomes a surrogate vision for us, and it takes us through all the byways of this town. It follows this intricate transformation of characters as they move through different states and stages of society. So all of this is to say... Blade Runner is all about this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we think about George Orwave, or we're thinking about this vogue for monsters of replication, and I think about the way that this film is doing neo-noir stuff. It's all about vision, and it's all about, you know, a character like Deckard, whose whole being is his ability to move between registers without belonging to any one of them. I just feel like all of these things are telling, they're whispering to me something about the logic of the time, that period in the early 80s. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember one of my memories from the year 1984 is my mom telling me that a writer, a British writer had predicted that there would be cameras in every house by now. That's what she told me. 
she was talking about, of course, George Orwell's 1984. And that was my first exposure to Orwell. So I was seven years old. And she told me that. And I remember kind of obsessing over that idea around that time. I think that Orwell's book really marked that year out as a time where we would have to um, yeah, engage in some serious introspection as a civilization. Yeah. As it turns out, it didn't take the form that he predicted. And so people kind of breathed a sigh of relief. In fact, Apple went so far as to claim that the personal computer was the definitive move that would make Orwell's world impossible now that we all had access to this tool that we could ensure that such a totalitarian society could never come about. And now, 40 years on, we look back and we see that a lot of the elements of Orwell's world have been put in place and do exist in our world. We seem to be moving into an increasingly authoritarian direction. And if we tie that to the advent of the personal computer and of the digital revolution, which completely transformed our lives over the last 40 years, we can see the early 80s as the last analog chapter of our existence as a species. Like that was the Mm. eve of the great change. And the great change, as we know now, is the the emergence the of replication hu- of ourselves as digital the replication of ourselves as digital in yeah, absolutely in an environment characterized by ubiquitous surveillance yeah ubiquitous control it's that that moment these films are coming out right before that great change and yeah i mean if you're interested in at least in like my interpretation of that there's my essay on Stranger Things is all about that. But I think maybe there's some connection there too. The sense of watching and being watched, which is in fact is the form that one of Orwell's maybe errors, I don't want to put it that way, but is that he imagined a society where everyone was being watched by nobody. But in fact, what actually came about is a society where everyone's being watched by everybody and watching themselves. So the ubiquity of surveillance in all directions, a kind of rhizomatic, universally kind of a massively distributed surveillance, maybe artful minds of the early 80s were picking up on what was just around the corner. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.